Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's important to, to remember this because this is the founding myth of Canada in so many ways, is that Europeans came here. It was an empty, quote, savage territory. The people who lived here were backwards and I guess I'll use the term again quote savage um, and that they that this was therefore the right of Europeans to come in take this land from the people who weren't using it there and pretend they didn't exist and establish this new system and structure like the only way Canada functions as a country is by pretending that none of that yada 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 part happened right like Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Hello, and welcome to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We are incredibly proud members of the Harbinger Media network. Um, You can listen to other great podcasts on that network like Tech Won't Save Us with Paris Marks, Habib D. Now, and many other great left-wing podcasts. We also acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered their land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Blackfoot, the Kainai, which are blood, Pekani, Paigan, the Stony Nakoda and Sutina of the Sarsi, um, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and Suto bands of the Ojibwe people. We also honor acknowledge that we are in the Métis Nation within Region 3. My name is Roberta Lexier, and I am co-hosting today's episode. Uh, My bestie and usual co-host, Scott Schmidt, is still away, Um, but I am thrilled to be joined by co-host Jeremy Appel. Jeremy, how are you doing out there in the world? I'm doing all right. I'm in uh, Edmonton right now. Edmonton? Uh, Yeah, visiting the the girlfriend. Ah, how exciting. The, The orange capital of Alberta? That's right. Um, yeah, loca- I'm located right now in Edmonton, Strathcona, which okay. was orange before the election. And uh, um, yeah, Heather McPherson won with like 60%, which is uh, pretty, uh, pretty I, I, yeah, I mean, that's pretty significant accomplishment federally. Absolutely. Yeah. Strathcona was where I lived when I went to the University of Alberta. And it was so great because it was the only I mean, it was always NDP. The MLA there was NDP. The MP was uh, NDP. And then the rest of the world was not. <laughs> and so it's kind of nice. It's a weird Linda Duncan. Of the world. Does it feel different being up in an orange part of the world than our terrible? Oh, yeah. I mean, just the air is so much fresh. No, um, of course not. Um, well, your face is fresher and cleaner. You shaved off your beard. So, you know, everything's changing. That's true. I did. You know, I thought um, my phone wasn't like recognizing me, the like face recognition. I was like, oh, it's the beard. Like it's too long. Um, and then I shaved it and then my phone still wasn't recognizing me. So it was a, it was a phone issue but i you know i like to change it up a bit every now and then well the good thing with beards is they grow back so whatever you can bring it back when you want that's true yes seem to know a lot about beards for someone who doesn't have one well i'm i'm married to a very large red beard (laughs) he's a beardo he's a very big beardo yes um lots of beard care happens in our house so yes very well aware Um, We're also joined today by our illustrious and usually quite silent producer, Mo Cranker, um, who we're dragging into the conversation today. So this is very exciting. Mo, how are you today? Actually in the Forgotten Corner. Yeah, I'm the one here. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Roberta, how are you? Um, Well, you have to say more than that, Mo. You can't just pass it right back over to me. How are things down? Yeah, nice try. None of us are here, are actually in there. Uh, it's okay. The COVID numbers are high, uh, still conservative by a wide margin, and there's a civic election with 35 council candidates. Oh my gosh. So yeah. There are like that many mayoral candidates in Calgary. 
Yeah, I think there's five mayoral candidates and then 34 or 35 for council here. And they did a forum the other night and it was two hours long and they gave everybody two minutes to introduce themselves. <laughs> so they wasted half of it on introductions. Nice. Is Ted Clugston running again? Oh, yeah, he's got competition, though. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, oh. A lawyer for the city. Her name is Lindsay Clark, and she uh, has a lot of support, it seems. So it's going to be very, very interesting. Mm, political fights are actually good when they happen uh, instead of just let's fly in the same old idiots again. Speaking of which, uh, Roberta, did you watch that UFC Students Union mayoral debate? I missed it, actually. I caught a couple clips afterwards, but were you there? Did you watch it? I, I wasn't there, but I, I watched it and like live tweeted it from home. It was really good. It was like the opposite of like the, the federal uh, English debate, which was just a mess. This was like, I thought it was very well uh, put together. Like, so they had introductions and then each qu question was they had like three candidates to answer that question, but every candidate had three uh, chips that they could cash in and get in on that question. And then also if um, one of the candidates like uh, criticized another, that candidate had a chance to respond. So it was, I thought it was a very, uh, very good format. They had like nine candidates there. So like one third of them, but like, <laughs> um, you know, another third of the candidates are like literally crazy people <laughs> no no let's not offend crazy people because they are these people are weird <laughs> it's an interesting election and also debates need to do something i mean they need to do something about how debates function so maybe the one um that the ufc did uh, might be a good model because um currently our debate structure in this country uh, i mean it seems a lot of western democracies that's in quotation marks seems kind of broken from what i can tell yeah well i think they should get rid of debates and replace them with a uh, fight to the death <laughs> that sounds good to me and then just the winner is the winner and we're yeah. done we don't even have to have the election just go back to the roman empire we'll just gladiator so I, it out yeah it sort of feels like that's what we're doing anyway <laughs> yeah fight to the death that's where we're at give jody a gundam <laughs> all right well today we're launching our very exciting uh first book club discussion uh last time we met as a group we introduced the book club how it was going to work and what we were going to do and now today we're going to actually talk about the book uh we're going to jump in and see um what we took from it and where we're at with understanding it so i'm gonna play professor here a little bit and kind of pull these boys into a conversation about this book um as we said in our introduction you don't have to have read it um but we do love for you to to read along and and participate with us um so if you do want to engage you can always tweet to forgotten book club um, and let us know any questions or thoughts you might have um, but we will make sure that hopefully that you understand what's going on in the book without having read it as well. So I just want to start with just a really brief introduction, which is that this book by um, Tyler Shipley that we're reading, Canada in the World, um, is really about Canada, Canada's foreign policy and our relationship to the broader world. But to do that, he starts earlier and closer to home. And part one of this book, which is what we'll talk about today, is really about the foundation of Canada um, as a country and how we sort of um, become this nation that's going to operate on a global scale for the rest of the book that we'll talk about. So part one is really kind of that introduction to what is Canada? So guys, um, maybe I'll start with Mo, because at the beginning of this process, Mo outed himself as a, quote, non-reader, um, despite reading the internet <laughs> quite significantly. But um, we forced him into reading this, and I got a message from him quite early um, after starting reading that he was really, really enjoying the book. So Mo, I'm going to ask you, what was it that you enjoyed about this book from the beginning? What were your kind of first thoughts about it um, and, and what it was kind of telling you about um, Canada and, and history? And then we'll get into some more specific questions. Just for some context, uh, I was stuck on a delayed airplane. And so I read the whole thing and beyond the first 100 pages, uh, just stuck on a plane with earplugs in. Uh, and it was super easy to read for a scholarly book, I don't know what we want to call it, um, 
something that is written by somebody smarter than me. Uh, and I just love that it started right at the beginning. And now I can see that we're going through time, spoiler alert, to the modern era, I imagine. And I like how many specific examples uh, he gives. Um, he wasn't really generalizing things. Uh, he is Tyler Shipley, the author. author. Uh, and just really specific instances of where we treated Indigenous people terribly. And you think you know stuff, and then you read something, and then you're aware that you know nothing. And so I felt like I knew nothing while reading this, and it was really educational for me. That's now great. you know something. I think, oh yeah, now you know something. It's, it's hard sometimes, I think, when we read things that really challenge our, our understanding and what we've thought all along it can it can invoke two reactions one is I don't want to read this I don't want to know this this is not good I'm going to dig my head in the sand and the other is what Mo you just described which is wow like I really need to rethink what I know and what I what I'm what I think I know and that it's okay to not know everything um, and to be open to that and so um, you know we totally understand but we also need to um, open to to these to these discussions so that's really great what about you Jeremy how have you been finding the, the first part of this book, what's kind of sticking out to you as we force you to read a book on your shelf? <laughs> I, uh, I, I, no, I, I like it a lot. Um, I like, I mean, the, the, so the first part that we're going to talk about today really just sets the stage for what he's arguing in the rest of the book about how Canada uh, sort of imposes itself on the rest of the world, that is, this is very much rooted in settler colonialism, right? And like the original sin of the Canadian state. And he just goes through it in like grisly detail, um, but it, it is very like, um, like it's very accessible for an academic work, right? Like he's like, you know, he's constantly reinforcing the argument that this is this is what Canada is, right? And you can't look at Canada and how it conducts itself in the world without looking at its foundations, right? And you know, I I, I did the uh, the um, the the U of A uh, Indigenous course. I think you did too as well, Mo, right? And I love quite a few of the references he made. It was like, oh, yeah, I remember that from the Indigenous Canada course. Um, but obviously, he, he has a different, like, perspective on it, one that's rooted in, like, anti-colonialism and anti-capitalism that sort of um, put that sort of not, not abstract knowledge, but that you know, what I had learned about uh, the history of Indigenous relations in this country um, into, uh, you know, sort of made it cohere into uh, the, the bigger picture of, you know, settler capitalism and abstraction and, um, Yeah, and like uh, in, in the first part in particular, I, I found the the parts about like the the Métis rebellions, um, really um, really interesting. I'm interested in how he, that's going to set the stage for like other um, anti-colonial rebellions that Canada has quashed uh, around the world. Awesome. So, so two really important things I think that I, I took from what you said. I mean, many, many things, but one um, is this kind of accessibility of the this book in particular, and Mo mentioned it as well. And one of the reasons we picked this one to start is that it's an academic book. It's a textbook, tech in some ways, um, but it's incredibly accessible, that it's not written in any sort of academic language or, um, you know, he doesn't use a ton of footnotes or, or those kind of things. When he uses quotes, they're um, usually block quotes and they're incredibly powerful to show, you know, like really the kinds of ideologies that people were playing with. And so it's not really a, a dense book in that sense. And then the second one, I think, you know, a good shout out to the U of A um, uh, online course about 
about um, indigenous history and relations in this country, um, but that this book isn't about indigenous history. It, it, and so the two pieces kind of fit together well, this, you know, understanding of Indigenous history broadly in Canada that you would get from the U of A um, online course or other sources, which are so incredibly important. And then, as Jeremy, you said, Shipley's attempt or, or ability to connect that with a broader picture of Canada's relationship to the world, that this book isn't about the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada, but that our relationship to Indigenous peoples in Canada tells a lot about our relationship to other people around the world and other Indigenous groups, other nations, and other sorts of things. So that history and that basis is really important and, and really helpful. So what is it then that he says in this book is that rooting um, of Canada? What is it that we need to know about Canada to be able to understand our relationship more broadly? Um, so he talks, for example, let's talk about um, the interconnection that he talks about between capitalism, colonialism, and slavery. He says that these are reinforcing and um, sort of uh, connected um, uh, developments that are happening. The emergence of capitalism is happening at the same time as colonialism and the slave trade, the massive kind of expansion of the slave trade contributes into that. So tell me guys, what did you learn about what he means by these terms, first of all? Let's start with like, what is capitalism in, in Shipley's understanding? Because if we're gonna go forward with this book and how capitalism plays out globally, we should understand what we're, we're talking about here. So what does he say is capitalism and how it evolves um, early on in into something that we can recognize as, as capitalism. Well, it's a, right, it's a system of uh, exploitation um, to create, um, you know, products. And it sort of leaves uh, people who make these products dependent upon the people who own the means of production, right? I, like, I think, like, uh, like to me, it's a very like standard like Marxist understanding of capitalism, right? Okay, so you mentioned a couple of things: exploitation, um, wage labor, basically to to sort of summarize this idea of you you give your labor to somebody else. Um, what else is kind of part of that? Mo, did you pick up any pieces about capitalism from from his understanding? I think one thing, and I might be skipping ahead a bit, but in order for capitalism to work, uh, other systems that may show other ideals uh, can't exist on a large scale at the same time, uh, which is why I don't remember the names of the ceremonies and things that were uh, made illegal or not like allowed. The, the potlatch? Yeah, that. Um, yeah. Like, you know, that's a very specific thing to go after when you're going after, you know, when you're committing genocide, uh, you know, you can't share your wealth with each other, uh, but that can exist for capitalism to work on a large scale. Okay, good. So capitalism is, um, I'm going to use an, an annoyingly academic word, but it's useful. It's hegemonic in the sense that it kind of has to be dominant. It, 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 sucks in everything around it and and has to eliminate anything else so um you know mo you bring up the the example of the potlatch and and you you briefly mentioned what what a potlatch was but basically it's a a gift giving ceremony practiced by indigenous peoples mostly along the pacific northwest um and it's it's really a way to, for indigenous tribes to redistribute their wealth um ways to if you were having a really good year um you might um you know give some some of that away as as a way to to earn some some respect and 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 help um and and if you were suffering that year you would go to a potlatch to get the things that you needed and it's a way to redistribute wealth well that doesn't work particularly well with a capitalist system which as jeremy said is about exploitation and about wage labor and you're not that doesn't really work when you're trying to redistribute wealth and even things out by giving stuff away so it has to be banned it has to operate only that way and uh, in capitalism, those who hoard the most are given the respect by the people, which is obviously the complete opposite. 
Right. Excellent way to point that out that, you know, it's not in a gift giving culture in the potlatch culture, it's the people who give away that gain the respect, you know, they have surplus that they can share with others. But in capitalism, it's about hoarding that wealth. It's about one person getting that wealth and being respected for for controlling it. One other thing I just want to mention about capitalism before we move on is that, you know, this isn't a history of capitalism discussion, but that one piece of it I think we need to, to always keep in mind is, is the private property side of it, um, that capitalism really becomes established um, mostly in, in England, um, but also in the Netherlands, um, as people start enclosing um, what used to be common land into privately held territories. So this idea that you can privately own property and you can extract the wealth from that and, and hoard that wealth yourself. Um, so there's like an accumulation part of it. There's an ex exploitation part of it. There's private property. Um, and then I guess the, the last piece I, I want to mention of capitalism is commodification that, you know, Jeremy mentioned this about making products that we're going to, everything becomes commodified under capitalism. Um, and by everything, we mean everything. So land, resources, um, human beings end up becoming commodified. Um, you know, anything that you can put a price on gets a price attached to it. And we talk about this, I think, a lot in the modern era where it's, you know, we say everybody has their price or, you know, you can get something, if you have the right amount of money, you can get anything you want. Um, and that basically is that idea that we can buy and sell anything with a price that's on it. Well, yeah, as uh, Karl Marx said, all that is solid melts in the air, all that is sacred is profane. Oh, bring it, Marx. <laughs> He was such a good Absolutely. writer. He was a good writer. Very poetic. Um, uh -huh. It's very use helpful to read um, some of the dense stuff when you get to the nice poetic stuff. It's lovely. Okay, so capitalism is emerging, like, let's say, around the 15th century. Um, it takes a long time. It's kind of a slow evolution, but we're starting to see this kind of um, shift to a, a, a system where there's private property, commodification, exploitation of human beings and others, and wage labor. So that's kind of emerging. Now, Shipley says it's happening at the same time as another process, um, which he calls colonialism. And Jeremy, you mentioned settler colonialism earlier. But what are we talking about when we talk about colonialism? We throw that term around a ton in Canada and elsewhere, um, but we often don't define it. So, so what does Shipley say or what do we mean by colonialism? Um, can you think of uh, examples maybe or, or how do we understand what he means by, by this concept? Well, he says on uh, he says uh, pretty early in the book that when settlers arrived in what became Canada, they came there for like two reasons: to make money and to um, and for religious reasons, right? To to save the souls of the 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 you know barbarians who were living there and that these sort of play into each other right like not only are we coming to make money but we're actually doing uh the people who are living there already a favor because um you know we're saving their souls right and i i thought that was really interesting that interplay between like the religious and the uh financial um aspect of settler colonialism but i think also even earlier in the book he talks about how in britain in france with the um you know onset of industrialization there were you know working a working class was created who was exploited there and many of them went to the 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 new world once like colonies were established there to uh um you know, try and become part of the uh, exploiting class there. Okay, good. So we have this idea that, um, you know, in England and other countries where the Industrial Revolution is really um, fully in swing um, or developing, I guess, at the early period, there's kind of a, a surplus of, of workers. There's all these people who have been kicked off the land. They used to be peasants and they'd work the land, but with enclosures and private property, they now got pushed into the cities and off the land. And now we don't know what to do with them. And so we need somewhere to send them. Um, and so they get 
sent to the quote new world um, where as Jeremy said they might move into a, a higher level of of power um, as Shipley talks about that doesn't actually really it's not really how it works that usually people just become exploited over here as well um, but that that's part of the process but let's step back for one second before we talk about people moving over here and talk about why were European countries even out exploring the world what were what were they trying to do like what's the point of leaving home in europe at the time that they did late 1400s early 1500s and going out and exploring the world what were they trying to accomplish there they were I, they were trying to find resources to extract Right. I think that was the, the, the primary purpose. It's not like they set out specifically to exterminate indigenous people. It's that they found all this land and there were people on it. And so they had to get rid of the people to seize control of the land and the, um, and you know, the resources that come with it. Yeah, I think to the very original question, uh, colonialism is rooted in the idea that one way of life is better than another, and that that's how it's justified, right? That's how pretty much everything was justified, was that the European way of life was proper and full of dignity, and they had Jesus, uh, and therefore they should take the land and convert these people to their way of life. And then, you know, we know what happens after that. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more detail about that in a second. But that, that's a really great way of, of looking at it, that it's this kind of um, this race for resources and this, this kind of uh, uh, pillaging of the earth. But it's, it's, it's couched in a kind of ideological supremacy. I wrote down a quote that, that Shipley had that says that um, ideological claims to superiority masked naked theft of territory. So basically the idea is that Europeans are looking for more resources, more land, more ways to, to gain profits and to more property to, to enclose and, and have under their control. And so they start spreading around the world looking for that. They jump on their ships and they think they're going to find their way to, to India through the West. Um, but in fact, they find this other place um, full of resources, full of wealth. Um, and so they think, well, we, we deserve this because we're better than the people who were living there. Um, and so we're going to take it. Um, and we're going to, um, on the one hand, he talks about um, kind of the resource exploitation side of um, of cap of colonialism where you know Spain Portugal and others just kind of went in and ripped out as many resources as they possibly could and shipped them home and then on the other hand we have what Jeremy was talking about of settler uh, colonialism where it's more about establishing um, territory control of that territory with people living there so you send over Im immigrants to to populate this this territory and that's what more what we're talking about with Canada is that you know the French and the British especially send over settlers to to try and take these resources and what what Shipley says is that they're trying to take, create the conditions um, for capitalism in this place as well. So they, they have to, as Mo said, you know, upend any sort of anti-capitalist traditions to be able to do that. But the expansion of capitalism is core to this colonial process. Like they're happening hand in hand um, and, and that they're part of the same thing. And I just want to leave the colonialism discussion. We'll obviously talk about it more, but he has this other really great quote that I, I really wanted to get on here, which is um, a really interesting way, I think, of seeing colonialism. So this is what he says. He says, it was like beginning a game of monopoly by stealing everyone's money and property while insisting that everyone else play by the rules. And I just thought that that was such a, a clear and effective way of explaining colonialism that basically the European powers went around the world and stole everybody's property and money and then said, but you have to play by these other rules of the market and free trade and um, industrialization and all of those sorts of things. So I thought that monopoly quote was, was really helpful. Any thoughts on, on colonialism, that quote, anything you want to add before we talk about the really fun one of slavery? <laughs> I think that quote was great. 
<laughs> and I remember it specifically. Yeah, and I think it's a good example of what you were saying, Mo, of how he, uh, maybe Jeremy, you were saying it too, of how he makes these, um, you know, abstract ideas really concrete and, and gives good examples. And I think, you know, a good metaphor is often a good way of, of explaining these. And I mean, I despise monopoly and maybe that's why I hate it is because it's, <laughs> it's colonialism. It is capitalism. So, you know, maybe that's why. So the third piece of this that, that Shipley was talking about is, is slavery. And he admits that, um, you know, all human societies have had forms of slavery in the past, not all human societies, but human societies have had forms of slavery in the past. This was not invented by the Europeans. Um, that is, you know, helpful to acknowledge. But what he does say is that the scope and the character of the slave trade during this colonial period was particularly unique and brutal. Um, so any sense of, of what specifically was so different about the kind of slavery system, the slave trade that developed during this period, then, then we might think of slavery in other contexts and kind of a... a, a earlier history. What role does, I guess, slavery play in the development of capitalism and the development of colonialism? How does it connect to these other two pieces that, that we've been talking about? Well, it's sort of like a, a, a three-legged stool, right? With colonialism, capitalism, and slavery, because if you're uh, you know, owner of a, you know, a cotton field, say, or something, um, you make a lot more money when you have free indentured labor um, than if you actually had to pay the people um, some sort of wage, right? So I think it, it really um, locks in that exploitative system. So not only are you exploiting people's labor, um, not only are you uh, destroying their way of life, but you, you, you own them and they, you know, sort of have no choice but to play into the, uh, the system you've established. And I think, uh, and I don't know if this was explicitly said in the book or if it's just me talking, but an important part of that capitalism working is that pe people need to be able to look at something and say, well, at least we have it better than that. Um, and at least we're not being put on a boat and dragged over here and separated from our families. At least we're not being forced to build the railroad and not get paid. Uh, you know, our factory jobs aren't that bad. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point, Mo. And, and Shipley talks about it in terms of, of the need to prevent interracial solidarity from developing between groups, right? That part of capitalism, part of the way it works is by separating the groups apart so that there's always another group to exploit um, and that people are somewhat satisfied with their position within that. As Mo, you just said, you know, I'm at least better than this other person. And if we overthrow the system, maybe I won't be better than that person. And that might be a bigger problem. Yeah, and, and, and he, he sort of puts that in more concrete terms when he talks about the Métis uprisings in the late 19th century, about how um, set, the settler sort of working class up, uh, up, where was it? Like, I think around Winnipeg. Uh, in 1885, it would be around uh, North Battleford as well. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, what's, that, what's that settlement called? Batoche. Batoche. Batoche, sorry. Um, That's okay. It's all good. And, and yeah, in that, there are a, a lot of, um, you know, white working, the white working classes, you know, we always hear about today, we're starting to, uh, you know, empathize with the Métis um, population there and realize that they were both being exploited by the same system. And so as a result, um, the Canadian government needed to sow divisions um, between them and sort of, uh, uh, you know, have these agent provocateurs to stir up uh, discord between the two communities and pit them against each other. And that was ultimately effective. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, he really reframes the thinking of the 1885 rebellion as, as really an attempt by the, the federal government to, to limit interracial solidarity and limit resistance to, to settler colonialism that was being established on the prairies. And, and I think it's, it's a really helpful, different way of looking at it. And the issue of slavery, I think, you know, as Mo points to is really similar to that of this idea of connecting the, the, you know, if you connect together the exploitation of people, they are going to rise up and resist that. So we have to make sure that we're separating people out in the capitalist system and some are exploited more than others. And Jeremy, you mentioned another really important point about the slavery connection. I mean, two really important points. One is free labor. Um, you know, if you're going to work in a wage labor system, the best possibility for those who own the means of production is to not have to pay a wage at all. Um, so they have to pay for this massive infrastructure um, to, to get the slave trade operating, but that's a, a joint group effort and the, the cost is spread out. And then once you've established that, you now have basically free labor to work on your land. I mean, we discover that slaves aren't particularly great productive laborers because who would be if you're being exploited and working for nothing. Um, so it doesn't actually work the way they hope it does. But the idea is that you get all this free labor. Um, and you also mentioned, Jeremy, the, the piece of, of kind of the commodification side of this, right? You know, we mentioned that how capitalism, one piece of it, an important piece, is the commodification of everything, land, water, um, resources, but also human beings. And the slave trade really commodifies human beings. It puts a price on human beings. They become property, not humans. And so there's this massive shift in slavery that happens where it becomes so large, it's a huge operation, and it involves this total um, commodification of, a, of human beings um, into something that's property that can be bought and sold and traded back and forth. Now, I hadn't really thought of slavery that way before. I mean, I had before I read this book, but it took me a long time to, to think of slavery that way. I've always thought of it as the free labor side of it. But I kind of forget about the, the commodification piece of it and just how dehumanizing that is to, to commodify a human being, you know? Um, and so, you know, I wondered if you had similar thoughts when reading this section or, or if this was just sort of like, oh yeah, slavery, we know that it's all good. I definitely thought about that. Um, I don't want to derail the conversation, but a big thing in animal rights is that capitalism really puts a price on life, right? It, how much is a cow's life worth? How much is a pig's life worth? And, you know, how poorly can we treat them to exploit as much profit as possible? So I definitely, I don't want to compare anything, but I, I definitely thought of it right away. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's actually great. I mean, it's not, as you say, it's, it, you, we don't want to make that comparison of like human beings and animals, but I think it is the same point, which is that capitalism commodifies everything. It says everything has a price. So animals that wander the earth naturally that, you know, have their lives that go about their daily business, they have a price and we can buy and sell and trade that. And we want to maximize the profit we get from that exploitation. And so it's part of that same process. It's the same reason we bottle water um, when really it's basically tap water, but we've commodified this resource. Soon we're going to be commodifying air. I guarantee it, you know, when, I mean, it's already commodified in certain ways, but as we go through these wildfire seasons and other sorts of things, the rich are going to be looking for ways to escape. And one of that, those ways is bottling fresh air. Um, and we're going to commodify those resources. So under capitalism, everything is commodified, animals, human beings, all of it. And I think that's important to, to keep in mind as we think about it. Right. And as everything gets worse, there are just more business opportunities, right? Now with COVID, right? Like masks are a commodity, you know? And I remember that was when when COVID first happened and I started getting these Facebook ads for, for masks. It was like, holy shit, this is like, this is real, <laughs> you know? And that that was also before, like, it became clear that masks 
were necessary to like limit the spread. Um, and yeah, I mean, just every crisis is an opportunity, right? To uh, wh- whether it's, you know, man-made or natural, it's an opportunity for people to swoop in and uh, make money. It's shock doctrine, right? Um, well, yeah, I was actually going to mention the the idea of disaster capitalism and, and the shock doctrine that, you know, um, when we talk about the formation of Canada, um, what the, the official nation of Canada, um, in some ways, it's a response to a crisis that was created by capitalism. I mean, it's just disaster capitalism over and over again. And, um, you know, I think we, we see it play out and maybe we can we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, so one of the issues I think um, that, that Shipley really raises clearly and that um, is connected to this capitalism, colonialism, slavery, three, three-legged stool, as Jeremy called it, um, is, this, um, is the, the reality that there were already people living here. So Europeans um, start going around the world. They want to steal everybody's resources and money and all these this wealth. Um, but the reality is there were already people living here that there were many of them living here. And, and Shipley talks about how, um, you know, the, the population of North America or the Western Hemisphere um, was thought to be higher than that of Europe at the time of European arrival. And, um, you know, there were millions of people um, that lived in this this area, and I, I I bring this up partly because it's it's incredibly important, but also there was just an article a couple of days ago in the New York Times. Um, I don't know if any of you saw it, but that was talking about a new discovery, an exciting new discovery in New Mexico, um, of these fossilized footprints that they've now dated back twenty three thousand years, and that this is exciting new. Um, information about the arrival of indigenous peoples in uh, North America. And so basically what this new evidence uh, suggests is that that indigenous peoples have been here for about 23,000 years at least. Um, And this is a hugely, uh, this is quite a bit longer than, than what people had thought. Now indigenous people's response to this article is, well, duh, we already knew this. And why do you Western scientists need to, you know, get all, collect all your evidence just to trust and believe us? But the point is that there's a, an abundance of evidence that Indigenous peoples have lived on this land um, in the Western Hemisphere for tens of thousands of years. So when Europeans arrive in North America in the late 1500s, early 1600s, there's already lots of people living here. Now, did you, I mean, I didn't know that when I learned about Indigenous history or when I learned about Canadian history growing up in high school and and before that, I learned that Canada was basically an empty land, that um, it was all just trees and rocks and mountains and all these natural resources and Europeans came and they made it into a productive, great peaceful, wonderful country. Had you guys learned that there were people that lived here before us? I mean, aside from like, we know obviously that there were people here before us, but like the lesson that we learned was we came to this empty land. Did you learn a different history than me? Yeah, I I, I would say um, like we, we definitely learned that there were indigenous people here. And, but I always like, when we got to the indigenous stuff and I was just like so bored, like I didn't care. And that, that, you know, has to do um, not, I mean, obviously it's part of the education system, but I think it's also the c- culture like surrounding us that this is just um, ancient history and it's, like who cares right and then you get older and you learn more things you learn more details and it's like oh okay this is ongoing and uh and, you know and you meet indigenous people too and um but 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 yeah i mean i learned about it but not well i had a very similar experience with uh, roberta where uh i know jeremy's seen seinfeld and i'm sure you have too roberta you know the yada 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 episode yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, settlers showed up and yada, yada, yada. We made some treaties and yada, yada, yada. And now we're here and now Canada is created. And so that's kind of what like a lot of the important details are just yeah, perhaps pushed, the, pushed to the side. Perhaps the ultimate yada, yada, yada. 
Yeah, I was and just gonna say that's like the perfect way to tell Canadian history. Like some Europeans showed up, yada yada yada. Here we are. <laughs> and uh, to your to the article you brought up, Roberta, um, I was talking to a woman in town who works with the Mawasan Center, an Indigenous group in town, and she, you know, like right now they're they're finding they're finding all these bodies of kids underground, and all the articles are talking about discoveries and uncovering them and finding them but every like we're they're just being returned now people have known that they're there uh and so westerners people uh whatever we want to call our society we need to stop acting like we're discovering everything and finding everything uh and taking this glorious credit for all these things when people have known that there are dead kids all over for a long time uh we're just digging them up now Right. And it's very Eurocentric that like, because we um, have now seen like definitive evidence of it. That's not, I mean, people in Canadian media, like, like Terry Glavin, who just generally like loves war, but he, he wrote in the Thai like a decade ago saying that um, the notion that there are these mass graves at residential schools is like, um, is an urban myth. Like there's, it's crazy. Um, and, you know, and he gets really mad when people want that out now, but, um, yeah, I mean, just the, the, the way anti-Indigenous, um, sentiment has been so, like, embedded in, like, mainstream Canadian political culture, and, you know, I bring up Terry Glavin because he, he has the same uh, colonial arrogance towards the rest of the world. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's important to, to remember this, because this is the founding myth of Canada in so many ways, is that Europeans came here, it was an empty, quote, savage territory. The people who lived here were backwards and I guess I'll use the term again quote savage um, and that they that this was therefore the right of Europeans to come in take this land from the people who weren't using it there and pretend they didn't exist and establish this new system and structure like the only way Canada functions as a country is by pretending that none of that yada 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 part happened right like if we talk about the fact that we had to clear this land of indigenous peoples in various ways the whole founding myth of this country is being something that came to to you know create a wonderful um peaceful nation in the northern half of north america it falls apart right and so i think that's what shipley's trying to argue in this in this part is that you know that whole myth is a myth it, there were people here. They had very advanced civilizations. They were very um, interconnected. They were, um, you know, incredibly culturally advanced. Um, but we have to pretend that they didn't exist because if we don't pretend that, we then have to grapple with what we did to make sure that we could take this land from them. Um, and I think that's so important to keep in mind. And Mo, I, Mo's point about, you know, Indigenous peoples have known this history they they've told it over and over they have an oral tradition they know they know what happened in the residential schools um, but we need science to prove it or something you know it's like columbus discovered america in 1492 well no he didn't there were lots of people who'd already discovered this place you know but it doesn't exist until columbus finds it yeah and even even when we have this growing consciousness of um you know indigenous peoples and the uh circumstances we've placed them into it there's still like in the background it's like yeah we discovered this place you know even like i like i can like you know when did the like i know that first nations had been here for like you know hundreds not thousands of years but like it's not like we're given like a clear date as to this is when, um, you know, um, the, the Iroquois discovered, uh, you know, their land and started uh, building their own civilization, right? It's like totally, um, 
removed from the picture and it's just like yeah they were here for a long time and then we showed up right and and so even then even in this sort of um critical framework that we're increasingly looking at these issues and it's still very much centered around us Absolutely. And Shipley says that at the beginning of his his party says, you know, I don't want to do the same thing. I don't want to marginalize indigenous peoples in their history. Um, but we do have to tell this Eurocentric story in some sense, because we need to understand the Eurocentric realities of Canada and where it comes from. And so it's this ongoing issue like I mean he he talks about this history um, the kind of pre-history as we often talk about it, the pre-contact um, history and he talks about the the climate changes that that transform indigenous societies during that time and I mean it's a very short piece in his his chapter which is fair enough I'm not criticizing Shipley but um, I wanted more I was like oh yeah this is what I want to learn about like how did these civilizations grow and develop how were they interconnected how did previous climate changes not you know human caused climate change but um, how did that influence their developments and I've spent a lot of time in Honduras and doing field schools there and we talk about the Mayans a lot and um, you know, their environmental collapse, basically, um, from from the large society. And I want more of that. That's the history I want more of. And we often have to just do this, you know, before the Europeans arrived, there were these complex civilizations, but now we're going to move to the European stuff. And so it's it's a trick, tricky balance, I think, and, and hard to, to figure out. But it's definitely a part of our history that's lacking. So... We talked then about how, okay, so backing up, if people lived here when Europeans arrived, but Europeans are like, okay, we deserve this land because we're superior and we need it for our economic expansion and the development of capitalism. How do they do that? How do they get this land? Do, I mean, do they just walk in and are like, hey, we'd like some land or like, you know, we talk about um, uh, this is we're now going to shift to the period post-Confederation um, to talk about how Canada specifically did this. How do they open up the West, for instance? How do they get access to this land? What do they do to the peoples who are already living here? What kind of strategies do they use? Manipulation and murder are the two words that come to my mind the treaties they didn't uh follow through with most of the time and just straight up starting on one side of the country and going to the other and killing people in their way destroying their land move forcing them to move uh really not nice things yeah that's a good summary of it jeremy you wanted to add yeah well i i think also when i allude to this earlier like sowing division was a big part of that, right? Like divide and conquer is the cliche, but that is a, a, a valued strategy by the powers that be. Um, just have people, and, and of course, prior to, to um, you know, contact or whatever you want to call it, I mean, you know, indigenous uh, uh, nations were fighting each other, right? But, um, you know, colonial powers were able to seize on that and, uh, you know, pit them against each other. And um, then, of course, um, came, uh, you know, and quashing their rebellions and extermination and then, uh, you know, destroying their culture and sending them to residential schools and then, um, once residential schools started uh, falling out of fashion in the 60s, uh, you know, kidnapping kids and putting them in the child welfare system, which continues today under different guise. And, uh, you know, so there are, there, there, like, there are a lot of strategies that, that um, you know, the Canadian state used, but I think Mo uh, described them succinctly. As... Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, that the conclusion I wrote down in my notes was the use of any means necessary. Like, basically, the goal was get this land, 
however we possibly can. And so, uh, you know, we talked briefly about how, um, you know, there were crises created that then were taken advantage of. Um, so things like disease, starvation, violence, um, you know, it, this inter- uh, racial uh, conflicts, um, the, then the Canadian government comes and, and takes advantage of those, those um, situations and, and steals more resources. Um, but we've seen also, you know, you listed a lot of the examples. Um, Shipley talks about um, the Northwest Mounted Police, for instance, that are created um, specifically to police the, the West. Um, you know, the way I learned about that is that Canada wanted to settle the West more peacefully than the United States had, where it had just been a free-for-all and there were, you know, actual wars and violence and we wanted to do it more peacefully. So we sent the police in first um, to create some stability and safety and then um, then the settlers could follow. Um, and that sounds lovely until you realize what police actually are and what their purpose is, which was not so lovely for the people actually living there. So I think that was important. And he connects it also to the present um, and the issue of policing um, and sexual violence. And he connects these, these issues together. I think that this is all part of the same process. He talks about the Indian Act, um, 1876, um, which has been widely um, mimicked around the world, actually, in places like South Africa. Israel also has used it as an example. Um, you know, Hitler was a huge fan of these processes. So, um, you know, that might be a, a problem for you if you like these ideas. Um, but basically, the idea of the Indian Act was to seize territory and limit resistance. So you take people's land, you put them on a reserve, um, and then you limit their ability to fight back. Um, you know, we talked earlier about banning activities and practices like potlatch or the Sundance or other sorts of activities. Um, residential schools, of course, we've talked a lot about um, on this podcast, but also um, a lot recently um, as these, you know, bodies are being discovered and, and other issues. Um, but that this is a long standing process of trying to eliminate Indigenous peoples from this territory. So I think, you know, what I, I found really helpful in, in Shipley's discussion of this is really that any means necessary, that the goal is very clear of, you know, getting control of this land from the people who are already on it, and that the government, the state will use any means necessary to accomplish that. Now, I wanna um, just ask, I know we're running low on time here. We're doing really great with a good discussion, but I wanna ask, um, you know, one really challenging question I think Shipley asks in this um, part is he talks about his own background a little bit, very briefly, he just says, you know, my ancestors moved to Manitoba into Treaty One territory, and he questions their legal right to the land, arguing that um, that land was um, stolen from indigenous peoples through manipulation, as Mo said, um, and that um, his uh, Shipley's ancestors were therefore given that land through a homesteading process um, illegally, and he questions their legal title to the land. What do you think about this idea? I mean, this is one of the most challenging issues probably around um, these conversations is if we say that we stole this land illegally, what do we do now? What do we have, do, do settlers have legal title to this land? What do you think? Uh, after I'd read the hundred pages of this, uh, I've been looking at maybe getting a house. And so I had these weird conflicting thoughts about like, should I buy? A house should I buy property do I you know is it the right thing to do and then when I was looking at property um an advertisement for like own 50 acres in the Cypress Hills uh popped up and I was like it's such a weird mental fight I'm having with myself and I haven't done a ton of research on it but it's the land back movement I think it's called where it's giving land back and I'm sure one of you two could talk much better about what that is than I could I mean I really really appreciate you saying that Mo about you know your own struggles of trying to to figure this out because it's not easy I mean our society requires us to own a house right it's part of our world that's your retirement package it's the way this is all set up um, you know, and as a young person, you probably never really thought you could own a house. This is also part of our system that we've set up. And so you look around and you go, oh, look, 50 acres in Cypress Hills for, you know, whatever, a couple hundred grand. It's probably pretty sweet. I mean, it's probably cost more than that. But if we 
think about it, you know, that land was literally stolen from other people who lived on it. And now I can go and buy it for whatever it costs. And that just seems very odd. And so, you know, I, I'm curious about how we, we deal with this. Do we um, do what the land back movement is? I mean, there's many pieces to the land back movement, but some of it is, um, you know, groups getting together to purchase land to give back to indigenous um, groups. Some of it is indigenous groups um, demanding the return of land um, in certain areas of the country. But um, this idea of land back, I mean, do we all live in the prairies? We we're surrounded by former homesteads. Um, many of our, I mean, Jeremy and I have a different history um, as Jews. We came to this country a little bit differently. I don't know your your background, Mo, but I mean, in we're surrounded by these this land that's been stolen so so what do we do with that do we do we give it back do we sit on it do we just uh, continue to talk about it and try and figure it out I mean that's sort of sort of what I am but what what was your Jeremy what was your first instinct when he raised this question of of his ancestors legal ownership of the land did it did it click into you at all in any way well, yeah, I think you, you know, it's an interesting dynamic with uh, with Jewish people and, you know, many other uh, quote unquote ethnic groups, right? Because you're coming to this country to, to flee um, persecution, but then by coming to this country and by, you know, purchasing property and participating in the capitalist system, you are uh, persecuting other people, right? And so... I mean, I like I don't know what 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 can you do as an individual? Like nothing except be part of the system. Um, but yeah, I mean, through collective um, initiatives like land back, um, you know, perhaps we can um, create some semblance of justice here. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important for all of us settlers, regardless of where our background is, to acknowledge the uh role we play in uh keeping indigenous people oppressed yeah i think so too i mean it's it's always a challenge people will always say you know waves of immigration change the the dynamic and of course that's true and we can have a long conversation about that but but some of the issues are are still there and I mean, I guess what I just hope is that a lot of the the people who live, um, who, you know, whose families did get homesteads back in the, the early 20th century for 10 bucks under the Homestead Act, um, that they understand that that land um, came to them through theft and that, um, you know, their $10 that their ancestors paid didn't doesn't make up for that. And somehow we have to to grapple with that history. I don't have the answers, but I... I think it's important for us to remember that this land was occupied and that we took it <laughs> by force, by starvation, by all sorts of measures. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it's crazy that I've lived here for five years and I had no idea, but Jeremy, you know Saratoga Park? Uh, it's the dog park at the bottom of Shelton Hill. Okay, yeah. Uh, near So that area, uh, a Métis settlement was there until the early 2000s. And they had houses and everything and so there was a plaque unveiling there so that's how the city is keeping conversation alive um, and it was well attended and the Moasan Center was there and they worked with the city on it but it's unbelievable like we talk about the 1800s and residential schools but this was actually happening into the 2000s and from what I understand and if a listener corrects me please do uh, the rule was that when the, the patriarch of the family died, uh, the family had five days to move out after that before the city would destroy the house. And so, you know, that happened. And so the last family moved out. And again, I could be wrong, 2010, uh, the last family moved out of that area. And so it's a very, it's a thing. And I, I don't want to sound like it's this great thing, but I'd love to know in cities like Calgary and Edmonton, if those things existed. And when, you know, they were destroyed and the recent cases of it are truly fascinating because we've known this is wrong. People in the 1800s knew it was wrong. Shipley gave examples of it. Uh, people have always known it's wrong, but you have a far fewer excuses in 2010 than you did in 1865. 
Absolutely. And this is a great um, kind of connection into the last point I really wanted to make that Shipley makes, which is that this is all still happening. This is not our past. You know, we talk about, as you said, Mo, we talk about this as if it was the 18th, 19th century. Um, but the last residential school closed in 1996. I mean, that's a year after I graduated from high school. You all are young, but I that's not that long ago, 1996. Um, and, you know, we see these examples of this theft happening constantly. Um, we're seeing it with pipelines being built through Indigenous territories. Um, we're seeing it with golf courses being built on Indigenous territories. Um, you know, it's constantly happening. We're still seeing the issues around police violence. Um, we're still seeing the overpopulation um, within institutions. Now it's jails. It used to be residential schools. Um, we're still seeing um, the sexual violence that used as part of colonialism through um, now well reported through missing and murdered indigenous women that's incredibly important to to keep a watch on and, and to pay attention to and so I mean the this is history but it's also our present and I think that that's really valuable so I think we'll wrap up there with this part. Um, and again, this part was of this book was really setting up what's coming next. And so for next month, um, this month coming up, we're going to read part two, um, which is Canada in the catastrophic in the catastrophe years, sorry. Um, so that's gonna deal with World War I, the interwar period and World War II. So now we're getting into kind of more the modern meat of, of this stuff. Um, so again, remember to tweet your comments and questions to hashtag forgotten book club. Um, we'll remind you, but it'll be about three weeks from now. So um, just anytime we'll keep track of that hashtag. So um, now is the time of the show where we thank our patrons who go above and beyond for us. I'm talking about Nicola Di Nicola, uh, Ray the Red, Dave Bonmiller, Chris Sterwald, and new uh, big time patron, uh, Darius Bergard, um, who's, who, I mean, talking of books, um, has a couple of books that um, we'd like to shout out called uh, Under New Suns and Octon Tan, Land of Dust and Bone. So uh, yeah, check those books out. I know I will at some point. And uh, thanks so much for your patronage. Two new books for the shelf. <laughs> exactly, to go on Jeremy's shelf. Yeah, I'll probably get eBooks. <laughs> That's fair. Then they don't go on the shelf. They just sit in a device forever. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for thank you so much for joining us for this uh, inaugural book club edition of the Forgotten Corner podcast. Uh, we look forward to joining you again and stay safe out there and take care. Bye bye. Goodbye. <laughs>